hello, welcome to the second episode of Residential Spread. Uh, my name is Corey Gergen, and I'm here with Josh Cohen. Hi, Josh. Hey, Corey. How's it going? Good. How are you doing? I'm here. <laughs> uh, Alexandra Edwards. Hey, Alex. Hi. How's it going? Uh, you know, uh, it's it's all right. Uh, how are you doing? Um, I similar to Josh. <laughs> and and Molly Slavin. Hello, Molly. How are you? Hey, I'm doing you know well. How are you? I'm I'm good. We are term limited contingent faculty teaching the humanities at the Georgia Institute of Technology. And like other schools, Georgia Tech has experienced massive disruptions and changes due to the spread of coronavirus. This fall, it is sending students and instructors back into classrooms in a number of modified course delivery modes. On this show, we investigate the sources and consequences of these policies and discuss what it's like to navigate higher ed during a pandemic as members of Precariat. And last week, we talked about some of the ways that the pandemic has affected um, us as, as instructors and, and Georgia Tech in general, both last spring and this fall. And today, we kind of want to get into um, some of the power structures that shaped our response to COVID-19. Um, so we want to talk a little bit about the Board of Regents um, and the University System of Georgia. So as always, we're going to start by taking our temperature. Um, and our temperature check today is 19. That's the number of members on the Board of Regents. Um, this is the group that decided uh, on our in-person plan for fall back in April. They decided this for all 26 um, member institutions of the system. Um, and this is a fascinating body. Um, I'm pulling some information from a um, thread on the Georgia Tech subreddit that, that Alex shared with us. Um, these folks um, are, five of them are appointed from the state at large, one from each of the 14 congressional districts. They serve seven year terms. They are not term limited. Um, and 10 of them will still be serving on New Year's Day 2025, whether our current governor is um, governor uh, at that point or not. Um, so these people are going to be in charge of higher ed here for a long time. Um, Alex or, or someone, would you like to talk us through some of these other statistics about who these folks are? Sure, absolutely. Um, they So we're not likely to uh, lose or gain any new members because of it being tied to congressional districts and we're not um, after the 2020 census, which has ended a month early, apparently. Um, oops, <laughs> randomly. Um, we're not likely to sort of have any new um, or lose any congressional districts. Um, Although these regents, these 19 regents, although I think there's actually 18 right now because one seat is vacant, um, they oversee all 26 USG institutions, but eight of them are UGA alumni, uh, and two of them are Georgia Tech alumni, and I don't know the breakdown on the others. Um, I have the feeling that none of them attended Albany State or Savannah State, which are two HBCUs in the uh, USG system. Um, only five of them are women. Most of them are white, 83.33%, um, uh, while Georgia is only 60% white. So they're not tremendously representative of uh, the demographic breakdown of Georgia as a whole. And only one of them has any experience in higher ed prior to being appointed. 
Yeah, yeah. A lot of these folks are in uh, real estate, um, things like that. Um, Neil Pruitt Jr., uh, one of these board members, um, my least favorite, uh, is his family owns um, uh, retirement homes, assisted living homes, um, and he has been in and out of the news for years um, due to the negligent conditions at those homes. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, other other favorites um, that we want to sort of isolate and, and discuss. I think it's really interesting when you start to dig into who these people are there, we can sort of say like, Oh, we say like, Oh, the board of regents. And it seems like this faceless sort of um, distributed power that, that acts upon us and we don't have any control over them, but you start to look at them and you're like, Oh, well I can see exactly why this person um you know, through cronyism and through sort of political favors to governors um, has been appointed mm -hmm. to the Board of Regents. So, for example, the chair currently of the Board of Regents, uh, Seishan Shalendra, he is the CEO of a construction company, a contracting firm um, that uh, does business with the state building institutions of higher ed, building buildings for colleges. So, gosh, yeah, he wouldn't, I mean, that's like a great person to have serve on the board, you know? Do you know that? <laughs> yes. No, no, it's, no. It's, it's like so yeah. transparent that it's hard to even necessarily talk about. Um, my other favorite thing about, uh, uh, I mean, favorite is, uh, I'm being sarcastic there, right? So Neil Pruitt Jr., um, CEO of Pruitt Health, right, who, as Corey said, in and out of the news for gross negligence. Um, not legally gross negligence um, that I know of, but but like disgusting negligence, right? There are reports that that people have died in his assisted uh, care facilities in horrific ways. Um, Station Shalendra, on the other hand, um, his father ran a company that um, was uh, um, sued for a $100 million Ponzi scheme in which the, the suit alleged that um, the father, Daddy Shalendra, and most of his uh, family were just spending investor money like it was their own. So these are the kind of people, right? We have to, we have to shout out Kate Joyner as well, because... In what is my favorite detail, the company that he founded is called ShredX Secure Document Destruction, which wow. is just a perfect service perfect. to have available. You know, it's a little on the nose, but uh, and he even looks a little bit like Cousin Greg from Succession. You get that vibe <laughs> from the from the glint in his eye. Uh, but but ShredX is the largest or one of the largest independent trading companies in the Southeast. So that's that's a, that's a synergy right there. You know, you got some members producing documents that definitely need to be shredded, and you got another guy who's there with the shredders. It's, it's this it's, is that's just efficiency. I mean, that's just a one-stop shop. That's right. Yes, it's it's very efficient. Also, uh, I am not a Georgian, but I did go to high school in South Georgia, and I don't know where Kay Joyner is from, but that's the most South Georgia name I've ever heard in my life. Oh, it um, really is. Oh, it's Kate so Joyner, is. Kate Joyner, it just <laughs> what what a name. Um, yeah, and and the one vacancy that Alex you mentioned, I believe, is uh, that's Dean Alford's seat. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. 
I think so. Uh, yeah. Alfred uh, resigned his seat in in disgrace uh, because he also has been wrapped up in a number of seemingly illegal money schemes. There are a number of investigations around the ways that he has been raising and spending money um, around central Georgia. Um, I thought he was actually, I thought he had been um, found guilty of those. I let's we'll check and we'll put the true story in the, in the show notes, um, which hope, which hopefully will also include the image of this man who just looks more like a cartoon villain than any human person I've ever seen. uh, yeah. Okay. Um, any other, any other last minute dunks we want to do on any of these guys? There's also a woman who um, runs a charter, like a religious charter school, right? So there's that. The like, only, there's always she's a charter the only school one person. I know anything. She's the only one I know anything about, and she seems real sketchy. Yeah, yeah I, there's uh, maybe a future episode to be done about um, public-private partnerships, but also like charter schools in Georgia and and Betsy DeVos's role in the pushing the sort of charter school movement, which Georgia has been obsessed with for longer than Betsy DeVos has mm-hmm. even been in office. Um, so it, it is interesting to me that that she is um, wrapped up in one of our regions is wrapped up in all of that. I, there's a lot of synergy, I think, as to the kinds of um, projects these people are involved in are not projects that seem to be for the good of higher ed. Yeah. Correct. And, and, and one of the things that um, I think you were trying to get at earlier, Alex, is that it's none of this is particularly hard to find. Um, Like you, if you just Google these people, you will see the stories about what kind of donations they made to get these seats and, or, what conflicts of interest they might have while they have these seats. Um, It's all just kind of out there in the open. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, I think one thing that's really important to point out is that um, the reason we're talking about this, right. And we'll put a link in the show notes to the um, Chronicle article about how hands-on USG is, is that Mm -hmm. like you they unilaterally make decisions for all 26 schools and they're they are um hell bent on not letting schools make decisions for themselves in a lot of cases right so whereas um a system like the university of california system might say well we understand that ucla is going to have different concerns than uc riverside or uc davis or um Mm -hmm what the medical school in San Francisco, right? That the, there are other state school systems that say like, we understand that the concerns of um, an urban campus in the middle of the capital are different than the concerns of a rural campus that's mostly commuter, um, you know, out somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Um, and the USG says, no, we, we Policies we pass are for all 26 schools and all 26 schools will follow them. And that is that, right? Which is where we got into the situation we talked about last week where, um, you know, Georgia Tech, uh, president of Georgia Tech said, we're going to go online after spring break. We're in the spring. We're going to, um, you know, coronavirus has hit the states. We're going to move to distance learning and close down the campus. And USG said, no, we haven't said that for everybody yet. And so you can't say that for your school, right? So they they have this sort of like iron fist control over what schools get to do, which is unique in the country. And it's that kind of top-down 
centralized uh, guidance that makes them the envy of all university systems. Or that's what was in that letter that all of the presidents signed praising <laughs> USG for its tremendous leadership or whatever the hell they were talking about. Yeah, this is another document that, that we'll put in the show notes. Okay, so I'm going to reconstruct the timeline. Yes. So uh, June, late June, we found out at Georgia Tech specifically that we were going to be sort of um, – unilaterally forced to go back to campus unless we met a really, really small set of conditions um, that could qualify for a remote accommodation. Um, That made national news. Like I said in the last episode, uh, I was in the New York Times, among other places, talking about sort of the problems with this uh, and what scared me about it. Um, Then another faculty member at Georgia Tech put together a letter uh, with four demands, including um, the the top priority demand was that Georgia Tech be reinvested with the power to make its own decisions about the fall. That was signed by 800 of the 1,100 faculty members at Georgia Tech, which is astonishing when you consider that you can't you can't get like the majority of faculty members to agree on like the fact that the sky is blue. (laughs) Um, Yes. Like faculty just don't agree on things. Like that's, that's how it is. Um, So that letter was sent directly to the chancellor of USG, who is not a regent. He is um, another person who's invested with this power to run the university system office. Right. Um, And he works very closely with the regents, obviously sort of enacting uh, what they recommend or decide or, whatever. It's kind of hazy how that bureaucratic structure works. <laughs> um, so he responded, the chancellor, Steve Wrigley, who looks like a little goblin man, um, responded to the letter with this sort of like, we're sorry that you feel this way, but we, you know, absolutely consulted all of the USG presidents on this plan, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Then um, another faculty member at Georgia Tech, Ian Bogost, uh, helped to put together um, a letter from something like 58 of the Regents professors, which is the highest chaired position you can hold as a tenured faculty member in the USG system. Um, so these are faculty members whose whose chaired positions are named after the Board of Regents, and they put together mm-hmm. a letter saying that USG's iron-fisted control over the system was bad, and it needed to stop because it was causing all of these things um, to be chaotic and and to not take into account the realities on the ground and how, like I said, you know, uh, Savannah State as an HBCU um, is dealing with a completely different set of circumstances from Georgia State, uh, which is, you know, an urban campus in the middle of downtown Atlanta, et cetera. Um, And the, the letter from the presidents, we think, based on timing, and based on the content of the letter, was really a reaction to those regents professors saying, mm-hmm this is a bad situation and we need to change it. Um, and so instead you got the, or the response to that then became, well, here's 25 of the 26 USG presidents saying that it's a great situation and they love it. It just, it just, that letter just reads like 
it just reads like feudalism where like you just bring out all the vassals and they have to like swear allegiance to like the local lord like it's so obsequious and just like we've had amazing conference calls and good thing the usg is here to give us such great ability to coordinate with each other like look you're not coordinating the first day of classes like whatever happens at UGA and Georgia State and Georgia Tech and these other schools, you're not doing that together. Like there's a lot to say for shared resources and shared brain power, none of which they're really availing themselves of. But you don't need to have some conference call to decide like the logistics of your own campus. It's just not really, it's not really helpful. And the whole thing just reads like, uh, it's just an, it's an apologia for like the USG's existence and being so centralized and not being, like Alex pointed out about the UC schools, not just allowing like more local sovereignty, which is like fairly ironic in the deep south where it's all about sort of like local autonomy and not imposing things, you know, from on high, which is exactly what they're doing. And like all of the presidents but one were just like, yep, this is what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's... um yeah, Josh, you said feudal. It also it kind of reminded me of those um, those early days of the Trump administration, where he would have those cabinet meetings with cameras, and they would go around the room and like all say two nice things about him. Oh, one hundred percent. Which you know, I I don't want to get into like uh, an argument that every, this is all Trumpian, but like in that way, it it did kind of make me think of that. Um, but the other. I don't know the other thing that I keep coming back to is that as silly as this letter reads, um, and like it begins with this absurd sentence about how their priority is the health and safety of faculty, students, and staff, right? And then goes on to like uh, claim that it's doing that by putting us all back in classrooms. Um, if its purpose was to disrupt that unity that caused 800 of us to all sign the same letter, um, it succeeded, right? Because I haven't seen that kind of movement um, since. And I, I, I think the reasons why are sort of more complicated that we can get into in this episode and maybe something we can circle back around to. Um, but I don't, I don't feel that level of solidarity across different levels um, of the faculty that I was feeling then. I don't know if you all have different thoughts on this. I think that it can be difficult to see. And I think that one of the things that has been really atomized is the ways that faculty, students, and staff interact with each other across campuses. Uh, But I I have seen still quite a lot of solidarity. um, And there's a lot of, uh, it's sort of difficult to wrangle um, so many little Davids trying to fight Goliath, right? Um, (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> get look, get that image in your mind there. Um, I, I do still think that there is solidarity, but I think that it, it can be really difficult, particularly as the clock kind of winds down to us really just like having to show up back on campus. Um, and, and, you know, unfortunately, we all still have to like do our jobs and that kind of... Um, 
I, I think there was a moment in early July where we were into the summer or ostensibly our summer vacation, quote unquote, where we all had a lot more time to be sort of doing the activism stuff. And now as we're in August, it's kind of getting to be like, well, like I have to make a syllabus, you know what I mean? Like I have to, I have mm-hmm. to go back to doing the, the real work, the work that we get paid for. Um, but I don't know. I, I will say also, I think the other thing that kind of maybe um, caused a hiccup in the momentum of the solidarity across the 26 schools is, of course, one of the demands and one of the things that we've been fighting uh, from the beginning was that USG refused to let anyone mandate masks on campus. Um, yes. and so that was the that was the thing that they the, the demand that they met in early July. Um they suddenly said like, oh, actually the CDC has put out new guidance and they hadn't, but they just lied. <laughs> um, and so the CDC's put out new guidance and we're going to expand the list of uh, high risk medical conditions for, that can get accommodations. And uh, they now say that we should do masks. So we're going to do masks. And they will never, ever say that it was the political pressure of so many people coming together in unity to, to push them on these things. But that's definitely what it was. Right. Um, yes. I do think that, and and we're recording this early, so by the time it goes live, we might have already seen some of the consequences of this. Um, we did just get another kind of um, trove of documents from open records requests that show some of this behind the scenes machinations um, and some of the, the reasons that USG has been making, the decisions that it's been making. And I think that we might see another sort of push of solidarity and concerted effort to... Um, expose what USG is doing here. Um, And it actually weirdly sort of comes back around to some of the topics that we've been talking about with the chair of the Board of Regents, who is a real estate um, construction contractor, um, and even Trump himself, uh, who is a real estate, a failed real estate mogul, um, which is that the one of the things these documents turned up was that in May, um, a company called Corvius that USG contracts with uh, to manage housing on nine of their 26 campuses um, sent a letter in May threatening legal action if the Board of Regents did anything to discourage students from coming back to campus in the fall. Um, And so we can see there, I mean, the document itself is, is there's nowhere where someone says like, ah, oh, well, gosh, darn, now we have to just demand everyone go back and be in person. Um, but that is essentially the effect of it, right? You look at the timeline and say, you know, in May, you're, this company said like, we're going to sue the shit out of you if you discourage students from coming back to campus. And then just a couple of weeks later, um, USG releases their sort of guidelines for what the strategic plans for fall are going to be. And they tell all 26 campuses, faculty who are set to teach in person or hybrid cannot shift their classes to remote. And we will mm-hmm. open dorms and we will start the semester on campus. And that's the plan you're going to develop first, right? Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Josh, anything else to add? Nah. <laughs> okay. Well, um, we're going to keep an eye on this stuff and, and we'll be back with more. Um, before we go, a- Alex, did you want to plug your reading group? Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the things that's come out of this, I think, is that I 
need to do a lot more studying about the what we call the neoliberalization of higher education um, and to kind of delve into the scholarship of critical university studies, which uh, turns the sort of critical um, apparatus that we develop in higher ed back on the structure of higher ed. So I started a reading group. Um, you can find out more about it on my Twitter. Uh, I'll, we'll put a link in the show notes to where you guys group go. But basically, um, anyone who's interested in doing the reading can do the reading. I'm providing the reading for free. We'll do like an article or a book every month, and then we'll get together and we'll chat about it and see uh, across the country how we can see this stuff playing out on our own campuses. And our first month's reading uh, really gets into the sort of Betsy DeVos privatization drive of this charter school plus um, the public-private higher ed partnership kind of thing. Um, so it's going to be really timely, I think. And hopefully, if not fun, it'll at least like give us a place to vent about how much this all sucks. <laughs> uh, you know, at, at, at this point, I find a semi-productive place for my rage to be fun. So I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah, so um, we'll put it in the show notes if you want to join us. Everybody's welcome. Definitely. Okay. Thanks. Thank you all uh, for for having this conversation. And uh, we'll be back next week uh, with more about uh, Georgia Tech, uh, COVID, and um, higher ed. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. See ya. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Uh, see you next time.